the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was May of 1945. The Germans had just two weeks before surrendered, and the war in Europe was over. But even as it would still be three more months before Japan would surrender and the Allies declare victory, a handful of pilots were already thinking about their post-war duties. Specifically, how could they use their flying skills to assist missionaries and advance the gospel to the far-flung corners of the earth? That was May of 1945. Today, 75 years later, Mission Aviation Fellowship celebrates a long and fruitful history of going into, as Scripture commands, the uttermost parts of the earth. Joining us now is a pilot, mechanic, and the president of Mission Aviation Fellowship, David Holstein. David, great to have you with us, and congratulations on 75 years. Uh, Thanks, Craig. Uh, Pleasure to be with you today. This is certainly a very exciting milestone in ministry to reach and of course the history of the impact of this organization born really in the midst of the tragedy the ashes so to speak of world war ii but clearly those early pilots recognize an important way in which this wonderful invention of the wright brothers the airplane could be harnessed to literally go into areas of the world that heretofore were completely inaccessible and deliver the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's right. You said it well. These pilots, mechanics who were coming out of the war, who had been equipped and trained to operate and repair aircraft, really had that vision of how they could utilize this tool, not as a piece of equipment to go into war, but really as something to bring life-saving news to people. And uh, that has been our privilege to get to use the airplane now for 75 years, all around the world, uh, really has been a special part that we've had in the modern missions movement. And it's uh, we're just grateful. We're grateful for the, the hand of the Lord that's been upon us for 75 years. And uh, there's, there's much to celebrate. And amazing how when you think of it, with all of the advancements in technology in the succeeding 75 years, I mean, here we travel around the globe in a nanosecond through things like the Internet. We've got all of these advancements in modern-day communication and transportation. And yet, ironically, almost three-quarters of a century old in terms of service in the mission field continues to be, in many respects, not only the most effective, but the only means by which the gospel can be communicated because so many parts of the world where Mission Aviation Fellowship has a presence are areas that otherwise are largely very inaccessible. Well, you're exactly right. In many parts of the world, the only viable way to get from point A to point B in a reasonable amount of time with a reasonable amount of safety and efficiency is the aircraft. There hasn't been something that's come along that that does a better job of that. And in the developed world, like the U.S., it's it's easy to forget that because we can hop in our car and drive down the street to a store and get just about anything we need. We have a, an amazing interstate highway system that crisscrosses our country. 
But that is not what many parts, if I say most parts of the world experience. And so the, the airplane has really been an amazing tool that we've been able to leverage with God's help to impact people's lives on both a physical and a spiritual level. The ministry of MAF, of course, has been an amazing one down through the ensuing 75 years. Considered cutting edge in those days and certainly remaining so even to this day. And interesting to note that following sort of the inauguration of the vision of this ministry, it was in February of 1946, I understand, when MAF took its first official flight to Mexico and the first pilot was a woman. Yeah. Yeah, our first pilot, and she wasn't just our first pilot, Betty Green was her name. She was also, in every right, one of the founders of MAF. Like the other founders, she had a role during World War II. She was uh, what's referred to as a WASP uh, pilot who uh, flew bombers and other fighter aircraft during testing that was being done. She would transport the aircraft to different places during the war. Betty Green was an amazing lady. We were so proud of the fact that the Lord used her to help launch this ministry. Even as a, as a teenager growing up in Seattle, she had a desire to learn how to fly an airplane so that she could serve the Lord doing that. And her parents got behind that vision. They helped pay for flight lessons. I think this is, this is in the 30s when that took place. And then uh, during the 40s, she heard of the work that was starting to take place, this idea of using the airplane to serve missionaries, and uh, she was very invested in that and had an incredible career with MAF for 25 years. She flew all around the world. She worked at our headquarters, a very special lady. Let's talk about one of the perhaps best-known events in the history of MAF, and in fact, the story became a major motion picture released just a few years ago dealing with this very topic called End of the Spear that depicts the experiences of a group of MAF missionaries working specifically in South America in Ecuador. And of course, many people are familiar with the amazing story of missionaries Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, who was one of those early adopting pilots working with MAF. For folks that perhaps are not entirely familiar with the story, take us back, if you would. The year was 1956, I believe. That's right. There was a group of missionaries who were working together to reach an isolated tribe deep in the jungles of uh, the Ecuadorian rainforest, the Alca Indians. In that community was an MAF airplane and an MAF pilot by the name of Nate Saint. And this group of missionaries, there's five men. Of course, they had families as well. They were working together in an effort to reach this group. And the only way they could, they could get access to them was by using this small uh, Piper family cruiser aircraft. Just, just two people could ride in it. And it started out for a number of, uh, a period of time before they actually went there physically, they would fly over the area, they would drop gifts to uh, the people and try to even build a relationship in that manner. Over time, they were able to actually fly into a sandbar on the banks of a river nearby uh, where this group of people lived. And then uh, really through some, some tragic misunderstandings on the part of the Indian tribe not really fully understanding what was going on, and of course having uh, coming from a, a very different world view and, and how they would envision people with different skin color who could fly in this machine. All of these these things were all wrapped up into confusion that ultimately led to their um, taking the lives of these missionaries. So those five missionaries 
were martyred, uh, really, for uh, this work that they were doing. And Nate Saint was one of our pilots. Uh, that story that took place in January of 1956 really became known around the world. It became a catalyst for many people who stood up and said, I want to take their place. And God used that, as he does. He took something that was tragic, and he used it to show his glory and to expand his kingdom. And so that's a special part of our history that goes back decades ago. And that's really one of the things that put MAF on a national stage, so to speak, because people became aware of what we were doing through that story. The irony, of course, and some people may wonder, well, gee, is it worth all the risk, even as we've read recently in the news of the tragic loss of life of an MAF pilot working in Indonesia, and we'll talk more about her a little bit later on, but people may question, gee, you know, risking life and limb to go to these far-flung places of the earth, does it really make that much of a difference? As a personal aside, about a dozen years ago, I had an opportunity to travel into the Amazon in Ecuador, in Shell, Ecuador, and actually meet with descendants of those Mm -hmm. tribe members, of the Alka tribe, who are to this day a group of very strong believers. In fact, the village that we visited there along the banks of the Amazon River are all believers. So clearly, even with the tragic loss of life and the significant sacrifice that was made by Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and the rest of the missionary team in 1956, the roots of the gospel that God laid back then have survived more than 60 years. Well, you're exactly right. And that is the beautiful end that story that started out with such tragedy is that widows of those missionaries remained in the area, and eventually that tribe became Christ followers and had a beautiful story to tell for the decades that followed. So uh, you're right. There are difficult things that happen, but we see the Lord using that in ways that uh, when we're going through the difficulty, it's hard for us to envision what what good could come out of it. And I think of the the Old Testament story of Joseph. He's an example of that. But we know that God can work in mysterious ways, and we have faith that uh, He continues to do that to this day. With us today, a very special conversation on a very special date, the 75th anniversary of Mission Aviation Fellowship, helping to share some of the glorious history and talk a bit about a vision for the future is the president and CEO of Mission Aviation Fellowship, David Holston. Information available on the web at maf.org. That's maf.org. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about this tremendous legacy of 75 years and take a look at the future of Mission Aviation Fellowship as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation with us today is David Holston. David is the president and CEO of Mission Aviation Fellowship, just marking 75 years of ministry around the globe. And I understand to this date, David, you fly a fleet of about 135 planes all over the planet, and it's everything from delivering medical supplies, emergency food, and certainly getting missionaries to and from many of these parts of the world that otherwise traditionally would just be completely inaccessible. That's right. We have the privilege of using the unique tool of an aircraft, and that's what we see it. It's a tool that allows us to really express in a very tangible way that God loves people who are even 
living at the ends of the earth, that he has a heart for the marginalized. He has a heart for the lost. He has a heart for those who are really uh, cast away from the rest of society. Those are the sort of people you oftentimes will find in very remote parts of the world. And so it's our privilege to really reflect his character of loving them by using the aircraft as a tool to help reach them. Do you see this then essentially as an extension of fulfillment of Christ's mandate to go into all of the parts of the world, Judea, Sumeria, and the uttermost parts? I guess this is sort of the fulfillment of that uttermost parts mandate. Well, I certainly look at it that way. I know that during our years of of living and, and serving overseas as an MAF pilot, we used to joke that you know, we didn't live at the edge of the earth, but we could see it from our front doorstep. <laughs> and it just the work of MAF by its nature takes us just some of the hardest to reach places. Uh, there's really nowhere that we serve with MAF that's particularly easy to reach. And that's why we're there. We're there to partner with today with over 500 different organizations, some of them very well-known mission organizations like Wycliffe or an Ethnos 360 or World Vision, all the way down to very small mission organizations that may only be in the country of Haiti, for instance. And uh, it's, our, it's our privilege to get to take these people to those hardest-to-reach places as they respond to that command that Christ, I believe, gave to all of us. Your relationship with MAF, of course, is broad and varied. You've served, as we mentioned in the get-go, as a pilot mechanic on behalf of Mission Aviation Fellowship. You're currently the president and CEO, but your previous post was that of Regional Director of Indonesia. This, of course, is a fascinating part of the world. Indonesia, the most populous Muslim country on the planet, nearly the size of the population of the United States. I think they're, they're maybe shy by 50 million of what we have here, but, but about 280 to 300 million inhabitants across some 17,000 islands. And people hear that and say, seven islands, Craig? No, 17,000 islands. And to be sure, while not all of them are inhabited, many of them are. And of course, in many respects, that helps us understand some of the challenges and why the work of MAF is so critically important in places like Indonesia, where access otherwise would be very difficult. You're right. And Indonesia is an amazing, beautiful country with beautiful people in it. We loved being able to live and serve there for 17 years of our life. Lots of challenges, of course, as anybody faces in that sort of work, but a very special country to serve in. For a number of those years, we lived on a small island just off the coast of mainland uh, Borneo, and there was no bridge that connected that island to the larger landmass. And so every day when I would fly, I would take off, I would fly over the bay, and then found myself myself over the larger landmass just with miles upon miles of jungle. And if we needed to reach somebody with critical supplies, whether it was food supplies, medical supplies, educational supplies, or if we were carrying a pastor who was going to be speaking at a church or involved in a church conference, or if we were picking up a woman who was in the middle of a difficult childbirth, the aircraft was the only viable way that they were going to get the help that they needed. And we would fly them from this remote, isolated village deep in the interior out to the coast where they could have the access to the resources that they needed. So it's just a, a very special tool to use in parts of the world that really have no other viable alternative. 
Now, while the name of your organization, Mission Aviation Fellowship, would suggest that its principal existence is missional, and that certainly is true, there's also been very critical life-saving aspects to what your organization does, virtually unknown, on virtually a day-by-day basis. For example, the current COVID-19 crisis, this pandemic that's literally impacted the entire globe, Countries like Indonesia have not been spared any of this. In fact, recently, the decision was made to literally shut down the country to all foreign tourists and travelers. Sadly, MAF has been in the news recently because one of your missionary pilots working to provide critically important COVID-19 tests to a remote village in the Papua Highlands of Indonesia tragically lost her life. Tell us a bit about the tremendous blessing that Joyce Lynn was to not only the work of MAF, but to the people of Indonesia. Well, Joyce Lynn was a very special member of our MAF family. She joined our organization about three years ago. Very talented, highly educated, gifted young woman who had a dream to serve God as an MAF pilot, an IT support specialist. And God had prepared her throughout her life through an education at MIT, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, other places, serving in the U.S. Air Force. He prepared her and he gifted her for a season of ministry with MAF that was very special. Joyce began flying not too long ago. She was serving in Papua, and on the day of her accident, which just took place a little over a week ago, she took off with a load of supplies, uh, COVID rapid test kits that were going to a a medical clinic high in the mountains, along with supplies for teachers that are serving at a small school there in this remote village. Uh, Joyce had an airplane load full of that cargo that she was going to deliver to them. Uh, Shortly after takeoff, she radioed in with a distress call, and uh, her aircraft descended to a lake there uh, right beside the airport where she was based at. And and sadly, Joyce really gave her life uh, in service to that. But we celebrate that God has a plan. He called her to it. It was a source of joy for her to do what she did. But it had been 23 years since MAF had experienced a fatal accident. So it's been a heavy time for our ministry. But we're just grateful that Joyce came and that she was responding to the special call in her life, and she was serving the Lord so faithfully. Our condolences to all of the MAF family, David, for this tragic loss. She was doing something that God had put on her heart And I think in that regard, we sometimes see these events as horrible tragedies, and they certainly are. Yet in the greater good, in the greater service of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that in and through this, God can use the circumstances and use it to glorify himself. As we talked earlier about Nate Saint and how the spiritual legacy that he left behind 60-something years ago continues to be felt, continues to impact lives for the sake of the gospel to this very day. And I guess in that regard, that kind of describes the overarching impact, the reach, so to speak, of Mission Aviation Fellowship, that since those early pilots post-conclusion of the war in Europe and not quite before the end of the war had already begun to think about what the future would hold and how aviation could be used to spread the gospel. All these years later, the current crop of MAF pilots really stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before them. Well, you're exactly right, and that's something that we're very mindful of. Uh, An organization does not endure with 75 years of ministry without many faithful generations of workers coming before us. And we're grateful for the dedication that so many of our predecessors had in building this ministry and investing in it. 
We celebrate that as we look to the future. We pray that those others will come to us to replace Joyce, to step into the gap that we now feel with her loss. But we hold to this truth that God will use this tragedy for His purposes. We're holding to the truth of that, and we believe that the impact of Joyce's life will be sustained for years to come as people hear her story and are inspired to follow in her footsteps. And so it feels like a bitter pill to swallow right now, but we do so believing that our God is sovereign, He's in control, and we trust Him for good work to come out of this. Clearly looking ahead, the need and the opportunity is as great today as it was when Nate Saint lost his life there in the Ecuadorian jungle in 1956, as those World War II pilots thinking ahead also realized. And so as the doors of opportunity continue to be open for organizations like Mission Aviation Fellowship, spend a moment, if you would, David, and talk to us a bit about vision for the future. I understand one of the exciting things going on in MAF right now, in addition to marking 75 contiguous years of ministry, is the recent construction work that's been going on at your headquarters there in Napa, Idaho, and uh, apparently uh, soon to be, if not already, about to be christened a brand-new family center facility. Tell us about that. Well, we, are, we do have some exciting things going on right now that are really giving us uh, a lot of joy as we anticipate about to finish the construction of a family center. This is a vision that we've had for a number of years. God has been gracious to provide the funding for this facility, and it's in the final stages of its construction. We hope to have the ribbon-cutting ceremony on that within just the next couple of months. We're really excited about it. We think that it will serve as a tangible symbol of uh, the importance of community and how God uses that to love each other. David, for folks that want to find out more about the ongoing work of Mission Aviation Fellowship, how they can not only support you prayerfully but financially, but maybe they've got a bit of the itch, so to speak. Perhaps they've always had a love for flying. They have a pilot's license. They'd like to find out if there might be a role for them in the Ministry of Mission Aviation Fellowship. Where can people get more information? Well, we would love for folks to visit our website at maf.org. Again, that's maf.org. It's a website that's really been designed to answer those very questions. How do I join MAF? What are the qualifications that would be needed? Where does MAF serve? What are the aircraft like that we use? And there's videos, there's photos on there, and I would just encourage people to take a deep dive into the website. Of course, if if somebody's heart is being moved to help support our ministry, the website's a great place to learn more where they can give. And I would just really encourage people to visit that, and I think they'll be blessed by it. This ministry is really a partnership. As often as we in the church who think about the missionary and missionary organizations that we pray for and hopefully faithfully support, we remember perhaps think about well, how exactly do these people get around from point A to point B? Do they travel just as we do? Well, almost. But in many respects, a lot of that traveling is facilitated by Mission Aviation Fellowship. And so the partnership with the body of believers, with the church, and bringing the good news of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth is really the heart and soul of what this ministry has been doing for now 75 years. More information and to help support this ministry, go online today to maf.org. That's maf.org, Mission Aviation Fellowship. Our thanks to the president and CEO of MAF, David Halston, for being with us today. David, thanks so much for the time. Thank you so much.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population, typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. Mention that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their, their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led, think about... Um, the shortness of the time that you have left and questions with regard to the the significance of your life and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care, <clears throat> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a you know very... Uh, and with an outstanding uh, department of uh, division of geriatric medicine, so I have a joint appointment. This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture. I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a, a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that he's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we, we haven't cap, you know, captured that yet. And so what we want to do is, is think about ministry from seniors first, and then during that final season of life, ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it um, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years. And four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, if you're a man, you, on average, you live uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, for, you know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home, and in the opening introduction, he, he writes, All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had, because I'm an old man now, and believe it. it believe me, it's not easy. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say we need you. And uh, And then there are very specific things over the... 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry. Um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. 
Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was was on active duty, and uh, I was uh, assigned to Seventh Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm, and my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral, and when I flew back to 7th Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging postdoctoral fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted and then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department, and I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed. And I said, well, I'm not I'm not going, <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan and... and uh, and they, you know, basically said, we're a young army and, and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed or you put your career in jeopardy. So somebody said I should go talk to my boss. And uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm. And uh, when I went in to see him, he mirrored the, the ideas of the, you know, psychiatrist, my colleagues, and then he said, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to, you know, thank you for coming to my father's memorial service. And I told him what I just shared with your listeners, uh, that, you know, I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving. And his whole countenance changed. And he said, I just got a call from Iowa from my family priest. And he said, your mother is leaving the gas on the stove. What do you want to do? And you see, here you have uh, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide, particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance. And he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenging, uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And... Um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan. And the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns. And, and off I went for a wonderful postdoc in Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory. So that's a quick intro into how I got into this. You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on uh, health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the the grain segment of American population, and yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to uh, meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight, as you hear, a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, serving now as associate professor at the School of Social Work and Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how do you uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors? (laughs) 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day reaches retirement age, it begs the question, how do we go about focusing on ministering to this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of, of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have uh, as con- active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ, but then, too, what about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and, and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique spiritual needs. We're talking about that in this segment of the program with us, Dr. Michael Parker, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. Let's talk about this. You know, every church uh, pretty much anywhere in America has a youth ministry or a young singles group. Are we going to see the day, Dr. Parker, when many churches will also have an older adults ministry? Yes. In fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry uh, from our experience. Uh, but the, the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our, in our seminaries, and we're not preparing people for, that, for the fact that people are living so long. And so that's kind of an area we've been working on. And if, if you look at something even um, as challenging as a disaster like Katrina or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa, seniors... Uh, uh, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70% were seniors, and 80% of those dear people belong to congregations. And so one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have kind of a, a safety net to older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there. And really, I think you know, our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe you know, in, in the event of a disaster. Uh, here in Tuscaloosa, where the F5 tornadoes hit, in one uh, church alone, we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes. And they weren't directly related. They were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado, and they didn't adjust well. So that's just one small area that I think churches can step up, um, helping. The, you, you were talking about some of the statistics. You know, some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two-thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease. And we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory? And for a Christian, it's the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, their memories of Scripture. What assurances can we give them? And so the co-author on our book, uh, Jim Houston, who, by the way, was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has, you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a, a theology of dementia. And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, 
is that they are remembered of God and they can trust Him. And that's just one nuance, again, of how we might develop some ministry. Do we also need to see, you made reference to the issue of seminaries and schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry. Do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker, of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do, and we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, the growing number of centarians, for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of the demographic within our congregation. Well, pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians. Absolutely. And, of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, They have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it from a positive point of view. We can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, You look at Examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who are, um, who their notion of retirement is not age graded. You know, we we live in a very age graded uh, society, and our seminaries are not immune from that, nor are our churches. We think we we go to school, we go to work, and then we retire. But the truth is, we if we're lifelong learners, we go to school our entire lives. Uh, we really work our entire lives. And, and, you know, so the, these are structures that are really lifelong. So we, we go to school, we work, and we um, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work. And the church needs to challenge, you know, to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages and be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs, uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs, help us, uh, you know, do some late life planning, end of life, aging in place initiatives, uh, helping people prepare for uh, uh, caregiving. And now we're talking about, you know, middle stage adults who are worried about their aging parents. And then challenging the, the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their, their long-term care plans. The long-term care industry in this country is broken, and it's in trouble. And, you know, when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of 65 than we have 18 and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table, and we, we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around, these elders are long, around longer and can help us. So, you know, involving them in uh, small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints and putting it to film. And there's a lot of work being done 
in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is uh, encouraging to that person and affirming. And uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations. Developing a vision for the aging church, renewing ministry for and by seniors. New book, co-authored by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Michael Parker. The new book, by the way, published by University Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And Dr. Parker, thanks so much for the time and the insights. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Thank you.